0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Okay, folks. Hi. Uh, I'm Paul Newton. I'm the Director of the Cambridge Assessment Network here. Um, And I'd like to welcome you all to Cambridge Assessment today and to this Assessment Today seminar. Um, Today's seminar is going to be presented by Professor David Rafe. Uh, David's flown down here all the way from Scotland today. Uh, to be with us, and uh, he's from the Centre of Educational Sociology at the University of Edinburgh, uh, where he was telling me today over lunch he's been for some time now. Um, his presentation has a very long title um, in the uh, in the programme. It's called Chalk and Cheese, Apples and Pears, Using International Comparative Methods to Make Sense of the Divergence and Convergence of Systems of Different National Systems. But fortunately, he's shortened it. <laughs> the length of the title, I think, Gives kind of some sense of uh, an indication of the complexity of the issues involved um, in comparing international educational and uh, qualification systems. Okay, I think it's just time for me to hand over to you David to welcome you today and to say thank you very much. Okay, well thank <coughs> thank you very much for for inviting me. And um, yes, I don't I don't take responsibility
1: for that rather sort of long and fruity title. Uh, Tim Oates sort of phoned me quite a long time ago to say would I give a seminar on the general theme of some of the issues involved in learning from international comparisons. And um, I'd sort of put it at the back of my mind, and then the, uh, the Cambridge Assessment Network brochure arrived, and I saw this title I'd had been given, and to my, I was a bit alarmed to see the title, but was somewhat relieved to discover that the blurb beneath it more or less corresponded to what I thought I had agreed to, to speak to. So my topic, which I've, I've, I've I shall present in terms of a rather simpler title is what can we learn from cross-national comparisons of education and training. And I'm, having got that far, I then sort of wondered, well, how do I present this topic? Because obviously there are huge methodological literatures, which are all at a fairly abstract level. And I, and I thought that could be a little dry and could be a little difficult to relate unless you had a particular interest um, in, you know, in, in, the, in methodology as such. So what I'm going to do is to be rather self-indulgent. I'm going to talk about two areas of cross-national research that I happen to be, have been involved in, and so therefore I shall be giving, as it were, potted summaries of at least of some of the issues in each of those areas. And then I shall come back and, um, as it were, using those two, among others, as examples, come back to my starting question, which is, what can we learn from cross-national comparisons? Um, and, of course... This is actually a very good audience to be doing this in because, as I've been reminded by just having a look at sort of the list of the the, the component um, sections of of, uh, Cambridge assessment, you, as it were, or those of you who are from Cambridge assessment, are a good example of, as it were, the internationalisation of education, although, of course, you started quite a lot earlier than other parts of the education system. Um, I've been a researcher, as uh, Paul hinted, for quite a long time. I'm not saying exactly when I joined (laughs) the CES at, at Edinburgh. Um, And during that time, it's been quite remarkable how research which formerly was carried out very much within a national mode and how policy-making tended to be national in its focus has, over the past, say, 20 or so years, become remarkably international. And, as it were, it's now almost taken for granted that even if you're doing a a research project that has a particular national frame of reference, somehow you need to include an international component. And of course, there are large numbers of research projects, and indeed i just come back from one yesterday that was actually, was actually connected with a, this is led, one that's being led for, by a Cambridge assessment, we were meeting in Greece. Um, lot, a, a, lot, a lot of um, current research is, is actually being carried out on a, on a completely international basis in an international context. It's always struck me as somebody who is engaged in these kinds of debates how it's taken for granted that because you're looking at other countries you must be learning from them, but also a rather naive notion as to what it is or how that you're learning. So what I want to do is not, as it were, to try to suggest, well, here's how to do it, but rather to give you an opportunity to identify particular strategies which researchers, even if they're not explicit in their own mind, do actually uh, employ when they're using international comparisons. I want to start off by making three distinctions. First, there are lots of reasons why we compare countries. Here I'm focusing on using comparisons for the purposes of developing policy or developing practice. There are other, if, other reasons, for example, more connected with blue skies research, um, more connected with sort of theoretical development or whatever. Secondly, And I'm going to come back to this later on. I want to make a distinction between policy borrowing and policy learning. Um, I don't want to appear to be name-dropping or anything, but I have once in my lifetime given uh, oral evidence to the House of Commons Committee on Education. A very nerve-wracking experience. You'll sort of stand there, grill for about a couple of hours as they go around the committee uh, members. Some, one or two of you may have, may have done this. Um, as, as they all come and ask their battery of questions. And at the end you feel you want to know, please, have I got the job? Um, and, the, and I felt somehow dissatisfied with the questions. They were all asking about aspects of international education. It was on 14 to 19 education. And it occurred to me at the end that underneath a lot of their questions was the assumption that we are looking at other countries for the purposes of borrowing or imitating what they're doing. I want to suggest that actually policy learning from comparisons involves a somewhat broader concept of policy learning. Policy borrowing might be part of it, but we need to think more broadly in terms of policy learning, not just taking what they've got and putting it in here, but using it as a learn, using a, the examination of their experience as a way of learning that, and, and learning things or concepts or ideas that can be applied here. And finally, I want to make a distinguish between the sociology and the science of policy learning. In other words, some, some of my academic colleagues who are interested in policy learning from international comparisons are interested, as it were, in what do policymakers actually do the actual practice. I'm, as a researcher, more interested, as it were, in the science. What legitimate inferences can you make when you're comparing countries? What should you be doing, as it were, if you are drawing the correct... Sorry, putting that term in inverted commas, drawing the correct lessons from those comparisons? If you, if you like, in the, policy, in the first of those modes, the policy-maker is the subject. He's the person you're studying. In the second of those modes, the policy-maker is more likely to be the audience of, of, of the research. Okay. Mine is a modular presentation. Module one will be a potted summary, which I'll try to keep to about 15 minutes, of one area of my research, transition systems, the institutional factors that shape education work transitions. Module two will be another potted summary, rather different in tone than in style, on another area of my research, which is comparative research on national qualifications frameworks. Module three is the integrative module, uh, which tries to draw lessons for or identify strategies for policy learning from cross-national comparisons, drawing on both of those first two. See if if the integration and and the idea works. Okay. Module one. Transition systems. The starting point is that if you compare countries in the way that school to work, I've called them education work transitions to reflect the idea that people no longer just leave school one day, enter work the next day. It's a simple, linear, short, one-step process. Education work transitions is a somewhat looser term. It implies that you can move backwards and forwards, up and down, as it were, and in a rather more circuitous and non-linear way. Nevertheless, processes and outcomes of education work transitions vary across countries. Young people approaching the end of their initial education have varying degrees of success in different countries in looking for jobs, they do so through different channels, the chances for example of moving directly into a job, that linear model, vary quite a lot from country to country, the sorts of experiences they will incur, the chances for example that they will move backwards and forwards between learning and work, the chances of moving backwards and forwards between work and unemployment, different types of work, etc, etc. These things all show quite distinct patterns across countries. It's not just that youth unemployment is higher in some than others, there are lots of other differences as well. second point is that those country differences persist despite what you might call global pressures, which in theory are are affecting all countries in a similar way and you might have expected um, to cause a degree of convergence in things like transitions between education and work. the concept of transition systems, I mean, there are different ways of describing That's the concept which I've used and, and, and some other uh, authors have used. Tries to explain those differences in terms of the institutional structures within each country, you know, the education and training systems, labour markets and so forth, which create different logics within the country. Things work differently in different countries. As a result of which, global pressures even if there are the same pressures and all the things we associate with globalization, changing skill needs, changing economic context and so forth, demography, even if those pressures do affect countries in similar ways, they might not, even if they do have the same effect on the countries, how it works out within the country, how it interacts with that logic will, will differ. So you don't necessarily get national convergence. The converse of that, of course, is that if you try the same policy, I mean, the classic example would be an apprenticeship Lots of countries have tried to introduce apprenticeships because they're seen to be successful in places like Germany. But actually they won't have the same impact, the same effect in all countries in which they're tried out because, the, because those national logics are different. So transition systems are essentially a way of trying to conceptualise the fact that in different countries the whole process of education to work transitions and the factors that shape them are, are different and respect different national logics. And I'm going to briefly give you a very potted summary of three, or actually, or subsequently four, ways in which, as it were, researchers have tried to theorise those differences. And the first explanatory framework focuses on the education and training system. And, of course, here I'm grossly oversimplifying what's a huge range of research, but the, the key ideas tend to be education systems differ in terms of how they're stratified the extent to which for example there are different types of schools in the secondary system the, the, how early selection takes place the extent to which their standardized qualifications and so forth are standardized nationally the extent to which vocational training pre- prepares people for specific occupations rather than perhaps more general occupational families the scale of the higher education system vis-a-vis other components of education and The general idea is that where education systems channel, socialise and label young people in ways which match their their labour market destinations, which is more likely to happen in stratified, standardised, vocationally specific education systems, where those things happen then transitions tend to be smoother and faster, more predictable and to involve fewer job changes. But of course there there are downsides as well. They're also less flexible, Um, people tend to move around um, less in in their occupational careers. So that's one explanatory framework. Again, what it's trying to do is to explain why it is that transition systems have effects on the processes of transition. A second explanatory framework, not entirely unrelated, focuses on labour market structures. And the key idea here is that some labour markets are organised around standardised, clearly defined occupations. People, as it were, acquire an occupational identity and qualification and then move around within that occupation, with, between employers perhaps, but stay within the occupation. Other labour markets, I mean, Japan would be an extreme example, are structured around internal labour markets. Occupational definitions are less, are less clearly defined. People stay within the organisation and maybe move around between occupations. And of course, Um, There are are variations on, on the theme. And the idea is that national labour markets can be geared towards occupational or internal labour markets. Of course, there are other types of labour markets, such as secondary labour markets or more flexible labour markets. And the general idea is that where occupational labour markets dominate, young people's entry is going to be based on the particular qualifications they've gained, rather than on, for example, their general potential or attractiveness to an employer integration there tends to be faster because they've already got the occupational skill, they don't have to learn it, are more predictable, but with much less mobility. Having got into that occupational niche, they're more likely to stay there. And the third explanatory framework focuses not so much on education and training or on the labour market, but rather on the way in which those two are linked at the national level. And uh, The key dimensions of variation here are the nature of those linkages the types, for example, of the institutional networks that, um, that connect education and the labour market. And, again, one can go into a lot of detail about how, how those differ. But the general idea which this type of theory is trying to express is that education work transitions are crucially shaped by the nature of the communications in both directions between education and training and the labour market. How, how w- well is education informed about labour market demands and opportunities how well are individuals in the school system informed about those opportunities, but conversely, how, much to, how well are employers informed about what it is that people leaving different parts of the education system have acquired, what knowledge and skills they've gained, or indeed about what, what information they have about the calibre of individual young people leaving that system. So there are a whole range of types of information to be communicated between education on the one hand, labour market on the other, and those communication flows influence the speed, the predictability, and the outcomes of transitions, so that where you have good communications, again, you've got smoother transitions. Now, the three explanatory frameworks I've just described do actually sort of combine together to form a, if you like, a typology of transition systems. This is actually an elaboration of one proposed by an American researcher called Alan Kirchhoff about nine years ago, And he called them type 1 and type 2 systems, not very imaginative in terms of labelling. But essentially, down the left-hand side, you've got the type 1 systems with standardised, stratified education um, and training systems, which focus on occupationally specific skills, in practice more likely to be associated with occupational labour markets and strong education training uh, labour market linkages. And type two systems are, as it were, the reverse: less standardised, more comprehensive systems, and sort of the converse with respect to the other uh, other criteria. And the argument is is that, as you, um, you know, in the type one systems, you will have a faster, more, more rapid integration to the labour market, lower risk of unemployment because people already have been prepared to fill their particular niches, pathways are more predictable, it's harder to change direction. People tend to enter the labour market at a higher level because they've already got more of the specific skills they need um, and entry is actually based more on skill rather than, for example, on potential perceived general ability or whatever as in type 2 systems. And lower occupation and career mobility in type 1 than in type 2 and a stronger correlation between the education and training experience and the destination in the labour market. That's right. Um, So that's one way of of putting together those frameworks. I should just mention a fourth explanatory framework, which if anyone has a background in social policy you might have come across, which focuses on the concept of welfare regimes. These researchers studying social welfare systems have developed various typologies, primarily within Europe, for saying how different countries' welfare systems tend to be organised and the principles on which they're based. And, um, I mean, the classic is uh, well, a series of works by a guy called Esping Anderson, um, 1990 publication, I think it was one of his uh, earlier ones. Um, and essentially he, well he originally distinguished the first three of those. You have a social democratic or universalistic welfare system which crudely describes the Nordic countries. And imp- sometimes called a conservative, sometimes an employment oriented system which crudely describes quite a lot of continental Europe, Germany and France among them. A more liberal uh, welfare systems, which tend to be you know, the UK, Ireland, no, um, North, North America. Um, other researchers looking at transition systems have sort of identified a number of, of, of others. So you've got family oriented systems, which again refer to southern European countries in particular, post socialist systems, which as you might expect refer primarily to former communist countries in, East, in Eastern Europe. Um, no time, as it were, to go into the details. Uh, 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 of those systems, which in any case will be interpreted rather, somewhat differently by different, by different authors and, and, and researchers. But the general idea is rather than focusing on particular institutional features as the previous uh, explanatory frameworks, here we're focusing much more on the values and assumptions under, underpinning institutions and the policies. And Those values and assumptions explain why it is that, just to take one example, you do seem to see rather different gen- patterns of gender differentiation in employment-oriented and family-oriented systems, where there tend to be more gender differences than there, than there would be in, in, in the other types of system. Okay, so that's a sort of a very quick potted summary of, as well, the explanatory frameworks for used by researchers into transition systems. Um, what I've just described is based as much, if you like, on theoretical speculation, well, it's, partly, it's all based also on empirical evidence, but it's sort of a kind of mixture of the two. So, to what extent, if you do try and assess these different explanations more rigorously against the empirical evidence, um, you know, how do they stack up? The first point to say is that actually it's methodologically is quite interesting, quite quite difficult. We don't have a lot of countries to play with, or certainly researchers in the past have not had a lot of countries to play with. We're talking about comparisons across members of a rather small Sample because, of course, the sample members are countries, they're not the individuals within the countries. Also, for reasons one can speculate about, in practice, research tends to have been based on a rather narrow range of countries. Lots and lots of studies comparing f- Germany, France, and the UK, rather fewer, and sometimes the US, occasionally Japan, rather fewer countries um, outside that group, uh, rather fewer studies using countries outside that group. But broadly, what the evidence does is it says that yes if you just take each of those explanatory frameworks in turn the evidence is consistent with them but it's not strong enough or pointed enough to say you can choose one rather than the other and of course as the number and range of countries increases more recently for example as the European Union's expanded we have for example good labor force survey data on a, on a coordinated basis for the whole of the European Union now, and that's a, more, many more countries than it used to be. So we do actually have more opportunities for making more rigorous comparisons across a larger and wider range of, of, of countries. But, of course, when you do that, you find that actually you need to add in more explanatory variables. Uh, the typologies sort of break down when you try to apply them to too many cases. Um, so labour market regulation flexibility is a very important uh, factor. The family structure, the nature of the extended family, how much support it gives to, uh, to, to young people, which again will vary nationally, is another important factor. Um, as you start moving beyond Europe, you find that, the, or even to Southeast Europe, you find that the role of the informal economy, the family economy, becomes an important factor. As indeed do uh, some of the, sort of the intermediary structures between education and the labour market, like information, advice, and guidance systems. So, as it were. The picture gets more complicated as you as you pursue the empirical studies, and I've referred to some typologies. And of course, a lot of what people have tried to do is, as it were, to put these dimensions together and say, well, can we sort of reduce, can we aggregate countries into or aggregate countries into a, a, a small number of types, possibly defined by these different dimensions of variation, and will these, as it were, do much of the explanatory work for us? And um, as I was saying. Typologies tend to work less well as soon as you try to increase the number um, of of countries or introduce more diverse countries. Empirically, they're not robust. If you change the assumptions you're using, the methods you're using, you tend to end up with different typologies. Um, And also that whenever people have tried this, you still find that, yes, countries still display their unique features within each type. Um, So... This leads on to, well, what a review, a very influential review by the OECD published, well, that's nearly 10 years ago now, called the multidimensional approach. In its first interim report, it interestingly came out with something that looked rather like that type 1 versus type 2 typology. That was based on five countries. Its full study was based on 14 countries. And it then said, no, we don't think the typologies work. Uh, we go for a multidimensional approach, where what it means is that you need to look at the, all the different dimensions that I've talked about, things like standardisation, stratification, labour market regulation, occupational le- versus internal labour markets and so forth, but treat them as, as it were the ingredients of analysis which, so that these different dimensions combine differently to produce country-specific logics. As it were, each country, to, the, ter- the term used by one of the researchers involved, you know, is a, a country-specific institutional package of different combinations of, the, of those dimensions. And typologies might help to understand how these work by, as it were, showing how particular combinations of those dimensions work. They don't actually tell you that they're not, as it were, precisely describing any any single country. Okay. So the transition system research, essentially, to summarize, it's produced quite a lot, it identified quite a lot of the factors which help to explain why education work transitions vary across countries. It's not managed to put them together, as it were, in a clear and tidy way. But it has at least provided, I think, a a clear basis for explaining why it is that, as it were, things like simple policy transfer, policy borrowing don't work. And I want to come back to that uh, in, in my last section. Now I want to move on to sort of module two and say a little bit about national qualifications frameworks, which again are another area where I've been involved in Cross national uh, research. Um, If you're not familiar with a qualifications framework, that is the definition which the OECD, again, though this is a different report, one published two years ago on a study of qualifications, uh, uh, this is the the, the definition that the OECD offered. um, And I suppose the crucial part is the first sentence. It's an instrument for the development and classification of qualifications according to a set of criteria for levels of learning achieved. Quite a lot of qualifications frameworks um, have other criteria. So you might want to, for example, classify qualifications in terms of the size of the qualification, the type of the qualification, the field of study. But levels, uh, the sort of the, the common denominator, as it were, of qualification frameworks, and, of course, the European Qualifications framework with its eight levels is um, proving quite influential in, in, in current developments. Um, I won't sort of read out the rest of that quotation, because it's essentially trying to say, well, there are lots of different types of qualifications, frameworks, and somewhere between the beginning and the end of that quotation, it moves from being a definition to being a statement of aspiration. Uh, And I think that uh, it's a point you need to bear in mind, because the interest... Why I think find NQFs, if I can use the uh, acronym, interesting as as a topic for research is that they are infectious. Um... The, count, the, the, the number of countries that's, uh, that are either introducing or have introduced or are proposing to introduce qualification frameworks. The last count I've seen says 70 plus, but that was uh, you know, several months ago, and I, I think the number now is quite a lot higher than that. There is this almost stampede internationally towards qualification, national qualifications frameworks. And at the meeting yesterday, the European Commission officials did, did announce that every single country in the European Union... Is now committed to introducing a national qualifications framework. And um, that, of course, is, is, is strongly influenced by the EQF, the European Qualifications Framework, the desire to keep up with it. What's, in a sense, slightly more interesting is that actually a lot of other countries elsewhere, without that particular stimulus, are going down the same route, including very large numbers of, sort of middle and, and, and lower income countries in, 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 you know, in, in Africa, in, in, in Asia, um, and, and in and, and that now in South America as well. And if you look at the way in which these have spread, there's been a lot of policy borrowing, and to some extent largely worrying policy borrowing, because it's often based on a largely superficial and uncritical literature. And it's certainly based on limited evidence of impact. Um, there are only well, a very small number of qualifications, frameworks that have been introduced, which are have been around for long enough to actually be able to say yes we have an evidence base from which from which to generalize I mean one of the reviews written by Ron Tuck he identified the five first-generation frameworks which were well England, Wales and Northern Ireland depending on exactly how you define that Scotland, um, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa I mean there are one or two others like Ireland which have been around for a a while Um, but there are not many other and even with those frameworks often too early to say exactly what their impact is on the things they're meant to to achieve. Um, Have they really influenced accessibility pathways? Have they really improved quality? Um, And often that evidence is rather contested. South Africa would be the the classic example where there's a a small industry of researchers who have tried to, as it were, provide alternative explanations for why the South African qualifications framework did not do what it was expected to do. Also, you may have noticed that the examples I've just given are almost all English-speaking countries, they're not, as it were, representative, a representative sample of countries across the world. And so, again, you wonder whether the conditions in those countries are replicable, you know, you know m- mean that their experience is necessarily going to be repeated elsewhere. And, of course, in promoting this, um, you know, spread of international, international spread of national qualifications, frameworks, a very important role has been played by international organisations, I've referred to the European Commission, but uh, also OECD itself, the ILO, um, World Bank and uh, many of the donor organisations which have often funded developments of national qualification frameworks in in, in third world countries, um, and um, have had a considerable amount of influence in both whether they've been developed and how they've been developed. Comparative, if you look at NQFs across the world, often they look quite similar. You can represent them by sort of a grids, which show you, you know, the different levels of, uh, of, um, of learning, different levels of qualification, and then characterisations of the learning outcomes associated with each. Sometimes the grid will identify fields of study and, and type, all types of qualification. Nevertheless, they're actually very different in their context in their purpose, in their design, and in their process. And um, what I want to do is just very briefly summarize um, the contribution which I've been making to a study which the International Labor Office is carrying out, looking at national qualification frameworks, implementation, and impact across, across the world, or it's, to, it's reviewing the literature across the world. It's actually got 18 case studies, mainly non-European, um, which it's um, looking at in, in, in more detail. And that's the, the reference. Just Before I do that, um, it's worth just mentioning that NQFs are very controversial things. Lots of controversies about the learning outcomes basis. I remember a few years ago when the EQF was first being uh, proposed, people in countries like Germany in particular were very anxious about the implications of the European recommendation that all NQFs have to be based on learning outcomes what does that mean for a German training system, which has always been strongly based on very different concepts of education and training, which are not learning outcomes-based, quite strongly input-based as well. Um, Lots of variation in the purposes of NQFs, but also lots of controversies about, in a sense, are they too ambitious? National qualification frameworks are often being used as though they were the main agent of change in education and training systems. They make very strong assumptions about what qualifications, what role qualifications can play as an instrument of educational change or indeed in some cases of wider social and economic change as well. Related to that, there's a concept which I've called policy breadth. Um, By that I mean the extent to which Qualification frameworks are or are not supplemented by those other policy measures, you need to make them work. You know, they don't drive the thing on their own, they need other things to go along, to, uh, along with them. And too often, countries introduce poli- qualification frameworks, as it were, in the expectation that this will, this will address their problems, and therefore they don't need to do, to do other things as well. And um, there are you know, various other controversial issues about them, all of which, of course, play out differently in different national contexts. And um, a final issue, which I think is entirely in the future, is that the European Qualifications Framework makes extremely strong assumptions (coughs) about the role of qualification frameworks as devices whereby you can translate between uh, different national qualification systems. I mean, that's the the rhetoric (coughs) that they use. And. you know, that claim is so far based on conjecture with very, very little empirical evidence to show exactly how some of those assumptions will, will, will work in practice. Um, so what I want to do is first to consider how we might characterize the different types of frameworks. And this is a typology which I produced, but it's based on earlier work by Stephanie Allo. And that suggests that you can think in terms of three types of qualification frameworks, of course, as, as with all typologies, this is this is a simplification. This is an ideal type. Um, at one extreme, the left-hand extreme, and if you want sort of the example of this is Scotland, which of course, I know reasonably well, and that's what's called a, a communications framework. By which is meant that its starting point is the existing education and training system, and its purpose is fairly limited. Essentially, it's using the framework as a way of trying to describe. Um, the existing education system in a way that makes it more transparent, that helps people to understand the relationships between the parts of it. And as a result of that, it might therefore make it easier to rationalise the system and increase its coherence and also possibly facilitate sort of pathways and access um, to it and and, and transfer within it. But essentially, it's, it's about, as it were, tidying up, making more transparent the existing system. And I won't sort of take you all the way down the uh, the, the, the items in the table, but the implications this has implications for the design of the framework, which is sort of loose in the Scottish case. You know, you don't qualifications don't have to meet very stringent criteria to fit into it, varying across the sub frameworks. You know, there are sub frameworks, as it were, smaller uh, frameworks within the, 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 the SCQF. Um, and again, it has imp- implications for how it's controlled more voluntary, more bottom up. And it's expected role in in the change process, which is essentially, it's expected to be a tool which you can use, but it's not really meant to drive change itself. At the other end, and and South Africa will be the example of of, of this, you have transformational frameworks, which, as it were, don't take as their starting point the existing system, but take as their starting point the future, or a hoped-for future education and training system. And, um, in a sense, see the framework as being a, a means or, as it were, a kind of template or a blueprint for that system and as itself, as it were, helping to drive the change that brings it about. And of course this has very different com- implications for how you design the framework, much tighter, much more central specification on how it's in, and how it's in, introduced. In the middle um, is what I've called a reforming framework. I've recently been involved in a review of the Irish qualifications framework and I think this probably fits into that category which, if you like, is somewhere sort of between the two. It takes the existing education and training system as its starting point. And so, like a communications framework, it tries to make it more transparent. Um... But it does actually have more specific ambitions for using the framework as a way of achieving change. In the Irish case, there's a lot of emphasis upon the framework as a way of trying to ensure that quality assurance standards are consistent across, or quality assurance methods and quality standards are consistent across the system. And also quite a lot of emphasis on trying to make sure that guidelines for access, transfer and progression are observed throughout the system. So it's trying to do a bit more than just make the existing system transparent. And so that, as it were, again, has implications for design, for leadership and control for the the expected role in the change, which is a bit stronger than the Scottish case, but not nearly as uh, strong, as it were, as in the transformational frameworks. Um, Now, if you use that typology, then as I've suggested, you've got Scotland as an example of communications framework, Ireland and reforming frameworks, and South Africa. Also, I think the early version of the New Zealand framework could be seen as a transformational framework. And as most, well, as many researchers at least would judge them, of those frameworks, the Scottish and Irish are probably the most successful. Now, I, I'm going to sort of skip across a long discussion about how we measure success and what the criteria are. But on fairly modest criteria of success, not least of which is the stakeholders are still on board and you haven't made big changes in strategic direction, um, then the Scottish and Irish frameworks are successful, whereas at least the earlier New Zealand and South African ones weren't. And if you then look back at the... Well, I won't go back because it takes a couple of couple of presses on the, on the switch, but if you go back to the previous chart and look to see what it is that communications and reforming frameworks have in common, both of them start from the existing education and training system. They have somewhat different purposes... And try and as it were, take that system at different lengths beyond where they're starting from. But they are both starting from that existing system. So, what I want to sort of do now is to sort of say how, drawing on that insight, is it possible to say, as it were, to p- produce a policy lesson from this comparison about the processes of change starting from the existing education and training system which might support the successful introduction of a national qualifications framework? And um, so starting from that observation that it's, it's this process of is where you start from and how you, how you move there from, um, that may, may be an important consideration. Um, I want to propose a model of change which starts from the assumption that the process of introducing a framework is social and political as well as technical. It involves, and the yeah. If you look at some of the literature around qualifications i 'm sure you may be familiar with a lot of this that it involves not just sort of technical issues to do with assessment and, and, and quality assurance but things like how you maintain and build trust, the social networks, the social relationships the political processes that underpin that, how you align what i 've called the intrinsic logic of a national qualifications framework with the institutional logic of education and training in the labor market and if i won 't We don't have time to expand on those concepts in detail, but if you want a kind of example, the intrinsic logic of a national qualifications framework says systems are seamless. The institutional logic says, oh, no, they're not. There are lots of institutional barriers that mean you can't sort of progress easily from from A to B. And so you've got to make sure that those different logics um, align with each other. It involves diffusing the language of the national qualifications framework, just learning to speak about levels in, in the new language rather than the old language, for example. Um, but also more than that, because it involves, if you like, more cultural change to do, for example, if it's an outcomes-based framework, with actually incorporating a learning outcomes approach into, um, into your curricula, into your pedagogies, into the assessment pr- processes. This is a big concern, incidentally, in the Irish framework, a feeling that there's a lot of compliance, but a lot of it was rather skin-deep. Um, and it involves crucially accommodating and reconciling stakeholder interests. People have different interests in the framework. And starting from that, sort of the normative model, if you like, this is my sort of policy lesson, if you like, is that to introduce an effective national qualification framework, therefore requires, and I've suggested sort of seven things which it, ne- which it would need. Time, crucially, all the evidence on all the frameworks I've ever seen say that this takes longer than we'd expected. Um, time for that cultural change to take place. Time to establish trust. Um time to learn the new language and of course managing expectations is consequently always a big big challenge for those running the, the process. It involves stakeholder involvement and partnership, I mean talking about employers, education training institutions and, uh, and the various other stakeholders involved. You need to make sure that they're the ones who need to, to put the, to populate the framework, to put the qualifications into the framework, to change those institutional logics where necessary to make sure that that implementation is deep, it's not just skin deep. It needs effective mechanisms for coordination. You need to keep the the whole show, as it were, together. It needs a loose but variable design of the framework. I think the the frameworks that have not worked are the ones... I mean, New Zealand, with the classic example, because South Africa followed the model, which had a very tight unit standard-based approach, which worked in some sectors beautifully, but it did not work throughout the system as a a general comprehensive framework. the design should also, you know, may, may well um, in, involve having a, a loose overall framework and then having smaller sub-frameworks within that framework. So that, for example, within Scotland, SVQ, the Scottish Vocational Qualifications, are a sub-framework of the SEQF. They have a much tighter design. The qualification specifications are much more, more, more tightly drawn. The SCQF itself, the wider Scottish Credit and Qualifications framework, is much looser in, how it, in, in, in the qualifications it specifies. Fifth, a process which I've called iterative alignment, um, by which I mean, you allow time by which, you, know, you introduce the qualifications framework, practice then sort of catches up with it, and then the framework maybe modifies itself because the practice has identified um, you know, issues or, or whatever that arises. If I can give a little example of that, um, once the F- Scottish framework was in place, um, not long after my, my own institution, Edinburgh University, for reasons of its own, Um, reformed its own curriculum structures. It used the SCQF, it used the framework to do so, so as it were, it used the the levels of the framework, it used the credit values of the framework as a way of structuring its its own curriculum and to some extent of influencing the pedagogy and the assessment that, 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 that was associated with that. So that would be an example of where the framework's in place, normal processes, as it were, of institutional review and institutional um, reform would result in practice incrementally becoming into line with the framework. And you can see the, the converse applying elsewhere, where you know, the practice has identified that the framework doesn't quite fit Uh, And therefore, for example, you can can, uh, revise the way in which learning outcomes are specified within the framework to to, to bring um, that into line with practice. So this process of iterative alignment whereby, as it were, the framework and practice come into line with each other. You need a balance of development within the sub-frameworks and integration across them. In Ireland, a lot of the emphasis was upon developing within the different sectors of education and training. I think they're now moving to the stage where more of the emphasis is going to be on bringing them together. I think you might... There could be very interesting parallels in this and the QCF, about which I know less, so don't ask me too tight questions about it, but i very interested in any comments you might have on, how, on whether any of this relates to it. Um, and finally, you need policy breadth. You need other policies. The qualifications framework itself is not going to drive all these changes, these other things to help to make it work and to achieve th- the ends. In other words, you need an incremental process of change starting from the existing education and training system. So what I've been doing is to give you an example of how, in my own analysis, I've tried and I would say that I think quite a lot of other researchers would sort of subscribe to something like that, that that model, I've tried to use cross-national comparisons as a way of trying to generate some kind of policy lessons that other countries might want to to take account of, including other, particularly other countries in Europe, uh, when introducing um, NQF. Nevertheless, you know, there, are, there, are, there are issues to do with whether that model can apply to later na- national qualifications frameworks that have been introduced in rather different contexts from, the, from, the, from my starting points, like, like Scotland, Ireland, and South Africa. And I, mean, I put these in terms of questions, because I don't know the answers. I don't know to what extent, as it, well, these are different contexts and the model doesn't apply, or to what extent... By keeping the model at a fairly general level and talking about things like the need for trust, the alignment of logics, language, cultural change, stakeholder interest, extent those are issues that will apply to any, log- any national qualification framework, where- wherever it is. My guess is that actually quite a lot of that model is true, but it shouldn't be seen as prescriptive or best practice, um, but it should rather be seen as, as it were, an example of an ideal type to stimulate and inform policy learning within a country. So countries might want to think about that model. But nevertheless, there will be other considerations that they need to bear in mind in their own national contexts. A very important one, which um, I think many European, and certainly many non-European countries face, is if you're trying to build a national qualifications framework with good stakeholder support, you need to build capacity among those stakeholders. I mean, that's an issue which has been less of a problem in Scotland than Ireland a very big issue in a lot of other other countries where they don't have the same background of dealing with some of the concepts, some of the ideas that the frameworks have involved uh, or the the modern-style national qualification frameworks involved. And and my final question, which is a rather more worrying one, is that I've talked about an incremental model of change. What do you do if you're a country which doesn't really have a a starting point for an incremental model of change? That does assume you've got something to start with countries which have barely developed education and training systems or quali- existing qualifications or, which have very little trust, maybe de- maybe maybe, maybe can 't follow my model okay now on to the final integrative part and I'm, I, I hope I can keep this brief and I now want to draw on the two examples i 've given across national research and just say I think that drawing on those. One can we have illustrated or can illustrate four different strategies whereby which people may attempt to draw policy lessons from cross-national comparisons. Okay. And the first one I've referred to already, and that's what I've called policy borrowing. And I mean the term that's often used is what works research. if if you like, this is what works applied internationally. You're comparing different national experiences to find out which policies or which institutions are most successful. And you assume that the countries which have most success um, have them because they have the best policies or the best institutions. And of course, a classic example of this is Finland. Since Pisa, I think the Finnish airlines have done very well out of PISA because of the stampede of researchers and policymakers all rushing to Finland to find out why it is that Finland consistently comes top of all the PISA assessments. And there, the assumption is that uh, there must be something about policy or maybe the institutional frameworks or something in Finland that's contributing to that success. Another example in the, from the transition uh, system research would be apprenticeships. At least 20 years ago, there was a a very strong perception that German apprenticeship was the key to successful education work transitions. So in lots of countries, including in different ways the UK, but including many other countries who had less of an apprenticeship tradition, there was a a belief that somehow if only we can borrow the German system, we can can emulate their success. Uh, And of course, national qualifications frameworks in, in general, and particular models of them in particular, Um, have again been an example of policy borrowing or they have to say that sometimes the examples that have been borrowed haven't been conspicuously successful so there are other reasons why why people have have tried to borrow them What are the issues raised by this strategy? Well most obviously you're transferring policies from one institutional context to another from one system logic to another they might not work there Um, In practice I think there are additional issues Um, it's remarkable how when policymakers get together they want to talk about what's on their current policy agendas so when different countries learn from each other including actually within the UK they're all busy telling each other about their new policy ideas but of course you don't have evidence on the policies which they're still in the process of introducing so this focus on new policies in international policy comparisons is not very helpful if what you're trying to do is to identify what has been successful. And National Qualifications Frameworks would be a good example of that. A lot of the poli- international policy debate is about the ideas, it's not about the experience and the evidence. I think there's another issue to do with the, how countries are actually chosen for comparison, whether it's by researchers or by by um, politicians. Politics comes in a lot. Um, convenience comes in a lot. I mean, it's... It is rather easier to compare ourselves with Ireland than it is to compare ourselves with New Zealand. It's a lot cheaper, for one thing. Um, And also the choice tends to be too narrowly focused on successful countries. There is the assumption that you can only learn from countries which are successful. I'd want to challenge that. Um, So if you read any of the methodological literature on policy learning on cross-national comparisons, you you would see lots of criticisms of a simple policy transfer, policy borrowing approach. I'd want to sort of modify that by saying, yes, there are some areas where actually you can borrow maybe aspects of assessment. You can come back, say I'm not an expert on assessment, but you might want to, to come back and say, yes, there are aspects of assessment where you can actually transfer that practice much more easily than some of the, let's say, more institutionally focused things that I've been talking about. But I might be wrong there. Please, please tell me. So I would suggest that policy borrowing shouldn't be ignored or abandoned as a, as a strategy, but it needs to be treated with considerable de- degree of caution. It might work in particular ways, or possibly in, in combination with one of, or two of my other strategies such as what I call keeping it in the family. And here if, if you say that policy borrowing is problematic because national contexts different system logics differ, okay well you compare the systems with similar logics and uh, in order to improve the chances policy transfer. Now, in a sense, I'm an example of, of this because quite a lot of my own research has been what I've called home international comparisons. Those of a certain age will remember when football matches were played between England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and they were called the home internationals. And that's what home international comparisons um, are, are, are referring to. And at least the original rationale for that was very much that here you're looking at countries which have more in common with each other, where those system logics are not going to be so different. Maybe one can transfer the policy lessons more easily um, but more, more generally, I think there 's been a lot of policy borrowing in national qualifications frameworks among Anglophone countries fact that you know, all the first generation countries I mentioned have been English speaking countries um, and I think there is quite a tendency now, for example, within Europe for policy sharing, or policy, or the open method of coordination, or peer learning, or whatever the other terms are, to take place within regional blocks of countries, or to take place within, as it were, families of countries. I mean, Germany and Austria, for example, Germany, Austria, and and Switzerland, quite often. Um, Okay, so this, again, is another strategy. It raises issues. First one being, well, who is in the family? As I've said before, typologies of countries tend not to be very robust. You get a different typology if you do the analysis in a different way. And all the studies show that there's actually quite a lot of variability uh, within types. talking to Paul over lunch and um, saying that actually there are quite a lot of quite interesting subtle differences between England and Scotland which radically alter um, the, the context, the degree to which different types of assessment are high stakes, for example. The fact that the qualifications or most qualifications in Scotland are not regulated in the way that they are in England. Things like that actually make... Have quite important differences um, to, as it were, those, those system logics. So even within types, even if you think of England and Scotland as having an awful lot in common, some of those differences might be quite important. And finally, of course, with this type of research, you can almost by definition, you're talking about small sample numbers. You know, home internationals there are four, or, or three or four depending on your on how you how you style Northern Ireland. There are only you know, three or three or four countries within the UK. Um, not a lot of uh, scope for detailed analysis if if we're looking across a lot of different dimensions of difference. Okay, so the third strategy, and again, if you like, it's an elaboration of the policy-borrowing approach, is saying, well, actually, you're still trying to identify best practice, but you're trying to do so at a more abstract level than just a specific policy or institution. And if you like, my normative model of change for National Qualifications Framework to be an example of this strategy. It's saying, here, I've, I'm not trying to say here are the particular thing, steps you need to take in order to introduce your NQF successfully, but I am saying that you need to follow a, a model of introduction implementation that, broadly speaking, reflects those seven uh, points. Um, when the OECD did its review of uh, transition systems, it came out with six key ingredients of transition systems, of successful transition systems, which were a healthy economy, well-organized pathways that connect initial education with work and further study, widespread opportunities for workplace experience to be combined with education, tightly-knit sa- safety nets for those at risk, good information and guidance, and effective institutions and processes. So there, what it was trying to do was to say, well, we can't focus on particular policies or particular institutions, but here are these six sort of generic general criteria or general key ingredients of successful transition systems, to use their terms. Um, and again, those, those with, uh, who, who go back as, as long as I do will remember a report by competence and competition, which actually is one, of the, one of, the, sort of the earliest comparative studies, which was very influential in the UK uh, policy debates, which essentially was looking at a number of other countries and saying, well, it's not so much the specific education and training system that the issue it's the concept of competence that they're trying to inculcate. And so again, you have issues with this approach. I never quite understand as a researcher what the methodology is for identifying the generic conditions. Researchers come out with them, but you never quite understand how they get there. And I think in practice, and I would say that the OECD is quite a good example of this, they tend to be influenced by the, sort of the current ideas in the policy circles as much as by, as it were, more objectively analysed evidence. A second issue is that if you can produce these generalised ingredients of success, you would expect as it were research to be more cumulative over time. You know, by Over time you would sooner or later arrive at exactly the right list. Well I'm not sure it has. And finally I, I find that the conditions specified are often vague or rather circular. I mean I think it was effective institutions uh, is one of the OECDs. Um, good um, good, good, good um, guidance and information systems. In other words almost stating the obvious that, yes, you need good institutions in order to achieve good transitions. So sometimes the conditions actually, you know, the conclusions aren't, aren't, very, clear, aren't very precise. And so I want to conclude with my sort of final um, set of uh, well, my, my final sort of strategy for for learning from cross-national comparisons and that's seeing comparisons as, as it were, heuristic. Uh, that's to say you're not you're using the comparison not, as it were, to tell you what to do, but to help you to learn for yourself what what, what to do. And, of course, this isn't... These four four strategies aren't in total contrast, but to some extent they're complementary. Um, And so what I'm saying is that you could use, for example, the OECD's approach, use my normative model, not as a precise recipe, but rather to start a process of thinking within the country. Um, source of... Conceptual frameworks which you would then use and apply to your own country, sorts of ideal types which you would then use to sort of to test against your own country. Examples, well, I've actually just referred to this isn't really an example, but a, a phrase I like quoting by Patricia Broadfoot, who talks about the, the value of international comparisons in terms of learning about your own country and making the familiar strange. It's using those comparisons to reflect upon your own, your own situation. A secondary example of what's going on at the moment, the European Training Foundation, which is actually col- collaborating with this ILO project that I've mentioned, it has, what's <coughs> at least in aspiration, is quite an enlightened approach to trying to support the countries it works with, which are the ones sort of as, as we're outside the European Union and sort of a bit further east and south. Um, when it's talking, not just in relation for, for, to NQS, but particularly in relation to NQFs, is trying to... Ap- it uh, adopts an approach which it calls policy learning, which is essentially is not trying to say, well, here are the models that you need, to f- you need to introduce, but rather, here are the things you need to think about, here are the questions you need to ask yourself, and to try to provide that sort of guidance and support. If you like, I mean, the way they put it is terms of a kind of constructivist approach to the learning of the policymakers. I hope that the ILO project that we're involved in, which again is not trying to come out with simplified models of best practice, will be the same thing. And as I mentioned earlier, when the OECD talked about its multi-dimensional approach to transition systems, what it was saying in effect was that despite its six um, in- ingredients, you look at all the different dimensions which seem to affect the ways in which transitions work, see where your country fits in terms of those dimensions, and then use that as the starting point for your own analysis of, what, of what, what, how your country works in your own systems log- logics. Um, maybe I'm being... I put question marks against those, incidentally, because um, that's my positive, optimistic interpretation. Of course, although, in a sense, because I've ended with this one, you might say, well, there's a kind of implicit assumption that this is my favoured um, op- option. Nevertheless, it raises issues, which is, how do we know that a conceptual and analytical framework is transferable? In other words, there are still we're still talking about transfer from countries to countries. But there are also more practical issues. I do worry that policymakers do find it very difficult to understand that looking at other countries is about learning, it's not about borrowing or identifying best practice. So there are expectations. And of course there's also capacity issues. The ETF is working with countries, many of which do not have large policy-making capacity, uh, and when they do they don't have the, have the disposition or the time for, for, for policy learning of this kind, which can be quite quite long and, and, and tortuous, particularly when you're dealing with an area like qualifications frameworks, which is, as it were, new, new, new to many of them and involves a new vocabulary. So, I can just um, make, I think, three concluding comments. First, I've been talking about policy purposes for comparison um, as being to support policy development. Just to remind you, of course, there are other, reasons, other purposes as well. Second, I've been, just to remind you about this distinction I made earlier between the sociology and the science of policy learning. I mean, I've, I've been trying to talk about, well, here are the methodologies, here's the science. I've kept sliding back into the sociology, in other words, what policy actually do, what researchers actually do, how things actually work in practice. These things are interrelated. And my final point is that, in practice, rather in the spirit of my policy learning, I mean, these aren't, these four strategies are not sort of clear prescriptions, or alternative, uh, distinct strategies to follow, they are more w- ways to reflect upon what we're actually engaged in when we, get, when we actually take part in this very messy business of, tr- of trying to learn from international comparisons. So our concluding point is that the crucial thing is not to be too purist about what strategy you're using, but to be more s- self-aware about the methodology for policy learning and the, the sp- in, in the spirit of, as it were, learning about your own policy learning processes. Thank you.
0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.